Good morning. Tribal citizenship will have a story in Montana, but it begins outside the state of Montana, involving other states and the federal government. And then by 1905, the tribal citizenship story is going to be in full bloom in Montana. Before 1924, most tribal Americans, and I, I do want to stress this, before the Citizenship Act of 1924, over two-thirds of Native peoples were already citizens. They had gained citizenship through ancestry, marriage, military service in World War I, but most received their citizenship through obtaining a trust patent or a fee patent to their land allotment and that became the guiding principle for most Native peoples getting citizenship, particularly in Montana. These multiple avenues slowly brought citizenship to the state of Montana from 1905 to 1924, laying the path for both changes and troubles, many of them silent troubles we don't quite see in the press the troubles that the new citizens are going to encounter, as well as the state. The post-Civil War is when the tribal citizenship movement begins, and it begins in a Nebraska federal courthouse when Standing Bear, Aponka, left Indian Territory where he had been removed from his Dakota reservation, and his son had died. He wanted to bury his son. So without permission, he left Oklahoma, Indian Territory, went home to bury his son, and along the way he gets arrested by George Crook. And George Crook will have to arrest him, and he's not very happy about it. And this will end up in a federal court, and the case will be called Standing, Standing Bear v. Crook, and it'll be 1879. And a federal judge by the name of Elmer S. Dundee is going to make a decision in this case, and he will rule that Standing Bear has standing before the court, in other words, he's a person, that Crook has imprisoned him illegally, the great liberty from illegal imprisonment, and that he's also a citizen, he's not a citizen, but he's a person under the 14th Amendment, which granted broad citizenship to freed slaves and others as a reconstructive measure. Now, Standing Bear gets a legal victory, and here's where the citizenship push now begins. Reformers and friends of the Indians, they begin to push the U.S. government for citizenship for tribal Americans. The firstborn here, those who were living here, they should be citizens. So a test case was brought before Judge Dundee in his Nebraska Federal Courthouse by a Winnebago by the name of John Elk. John Elk tries to register to vote. He gave up his Winnebago citizenship. He says, I'm now an American. I live in Omaha. He went to the Fifth Ward and he asked Charles Wilkins, the registrar for the Fifth Ward, register me to vote. Charles Wilkins said, no, I can't register you to vote because you're an Indian. You're not a citizen. So now they have the test case. It goes before Judge Elmer Dundee, 
Elmer Dundee rules, Standing Bear, not Standing Bear, but John Elk is a citizen of the United States. So, 1880, the United States government is going to protest and they then take Judge Dundee's case to the United States Supreme Court. And in the United States Supreme Court, Chief Justice Horace Gray will make a decision. In the case Elk v. Wilkins, 1884. And this case is a real tough case. It's going to have elements of the Dred Scott decision from 1857 which ruled that a man who was black and moved into a free state was not a citizen. Judge, Judge Roger Tandy made that decision in Dred Scott. And what Justice Gray is going to say is, Elk, you are not a citizen. You cannot be a citizen unless Congress says you're a citizen. You do not have refugee immigrant status. So, what the reformers do because of this disappointment is they push Congress to pass legislation. Congress is going to have to rule to satisfy this Supreme Court case. Notice this is 44 years before the, 18, the 1924 Citizenship Act. Congress, 1881, tries to pass a citizenship bill tied to land allotment, property ownership. They fail. But in 1882, in a little place called Omaha, Nebraska, not the city, but the reservation, Congress passed an act dividing the reservation in severalty, providing for common land of the tribe to be divided into individual allotments. And in that law, Congress granted citizenship to the Omaha allottees who took a trust patent. So once the allotment schedule is approved, the Omaha became citizens of the United States, and that occurred in 1884. Now, the Omaha Allotment Act provides the model for the General Allotment Act of 1887. One of the big battles was not over division of land and creating private property in 1887, but the battle was citizenship. How do we make these people citizens? The reformers naively believe, men like Dawes, the Boston Indian Citizenship Committee, they naively believe that citizenship will allow people, native people, to protect their rights and provide them an avenue for justice. Very naive, but it becomes part of the law. The 1887 the General Allotment Act just borrows the language from the 1882 Omaha Allotment Act and now citizenship. Citizenship will be granted upon the receiving of a trust patent. Citizenship. The trust patents controlled by the federal government. The federal government restricts it against sale taxation, and getting a mortgage. So notice, lots of problems, but we just want to look at the citizenship question. In 1902, chairman of the U.S. Board of Indian Commissioners, Merle E. Gates, former president at Rutgers, praised the Allotment Act of 1887, saying, quote, 
Through allotments of land only have we provided a way for Indians into citizenship. So we have the structure already in place. But Congress will pass the 1889 Enabling Act that will allow Montana and three other states to join the Union. But we have a problem between a tribal person's person and his or her property. Citizenship will go to the person, but the federal government, due to the restrictions, will control the property. One of the early reservations allotted was the Yankton Reservation in South Dakota. 1892, 300 Yankton citizens pleaded and wrote a petition to the state of South Dakota demanding that a precinct, a voting precinct, be opened because under the law of 1887, they were citizens. South Dakota refused to open a precinct. And the reason was the Enabling Act. The Enabling Act prohibited Montana, South Dakota, and the other two states from having any authority on federal lands or reservations. So they kept a very deep divide between the state, the federal government, and the reservations. As a result, Montana's constitution has a disclaimer prohibiting the state from getting involved on reservations or federal lands. South Dakota has a similar disclaimer. So, no voting precincts, so now we have citizens who the Congress of the United States said are eligible to vote, but, but they can't because the state, under the Enabling Act and its Constitution and the 1887 General Allotment Act all has language which prohibits the state from taxing property and with that language, states don't put in precincts. So we have quiet troubles, quiet troubles. Citizenship illustrated Congress's hope of moving the tribal issue from the federal government to the state. But at the same time, Congress retains guardianship over the tribesmen's property. So we have this tug of war going on back and forth. These are legal walls between state, local governments, and tribal citizens in the United States. Now this was known at the time. In 1889 at the Lake Mohawk Conference of the Friends of Indians, former Supreme Court Justice William E. Strong gave a presentation, much like the one I'm giving. And he said, the 1887 General Allotment Act is going to cause trouble between local and state governments. The tribesmen are going to receive a trust patent, which is restricted on the land, and the states can't tax them. The tribesmen will become citizens of the states in which they reside, but they're also, under their property status, wards of the nation. The United States, Justice Story wrote, held absolute title to their lands for 25 years, but as citizens they exercised the franchise according to state law. Bitterness already existed. This is 1889. Bitterness existed between non-tax paying citizens in states and territories. And he said it's only going to get worse when non-tax paying citizens start to vote in elections raising mill levies. 
or answering questions about funding public education. I know these aren't two real excitable topics, funding education and mill levies, but at the local level, it's going to get real nasty. Now, the first citizen natives who will become citizens, the first natives who will become citizens in Montana are interestingly going to be the landless Cree from Canada. Now, they're not federal wards of the U.S. government, but they refugees from the Riel Rebellion. And so in the 1890s, a few, and I want to stress a few, began to seek residency and actually get citizenship. And it's a very small number. I find two, three here, two, three there. For example, in 1898, Holy Altar and Good Horse, refugees from the Riel War, sought and received one residency and citizenship in Montana. So, most Montanans wanted the landless Cree, for example, from Canada gone, but a few got citizenship. But again, they're using the refugee status. Now, we have a number of mixed bloods, particularly living north of Shoto at the same time, the 1890s. And they sought residency based on their father's side, being white. And they voted in the Robert precinct. Being sons of white fathers, they claimed the citizenship of their white fathers. And they started to vote. Now in 1895, to put a curb on this type of voting, the state of Montana prohibited voting precincts in one, unorganized counties, which includes reservations and a lot of the federal lands, Two, an Indian agency. Three, an Indian trading post. And four, any reservation. This mandated that a person living on a reservation could not be considered a resident of the state of Montana for voting purposes. So Montana is exercising its right to set qualifications for who can vote. Despite gaining both citizenship and the franchise, these mixed bloods living north of Shoto in the 1890s did have citizenship and residency, but the citizens of Shoto and the surrounding area said they're really wards of the federal government and shouldn't vote. So they didn't want them voting, but they got in. Now, 1898, elections nationwide are held and 30,000 tribesmen are already citizens nationwide. And they were eligible to vote based on the 1887 General Allotment Act. The Washington Post claimed Montana has 120 crows at Crow Agency who can vote. That number was totally wrong because the reservation allotment schedule hadn't been approved yet. There were a few whites who could vote, but since it was still an unorganized county, there was no precinct, no voting. Now, the Crow will become the first en masse group of native people in Montana to become citizens. The allotment schedule is finally approved in 1905. The Crow were allotted under the same order by the president that allotted the Yankton Reservation, but it wasn't approved. The allotment schedule wasn't approved until 1905. The Crow property is held in trust, tribal, and individual, and the Crow are citizens. 
They will be able to vote because uh, in, the county will be organized, Bighorn County will be organized in 1913. So now that fulfills the state requirements. You've got to have an organized county. So the Crow will vote. But notice they're going to fulfill Justice Story's prophecy at Lake Mohawk. Non-tax-paying citizens voting. Kind of gets emotional here now, doesn't it? Wait, they vote and pay no taxes? Anybody getting angry? Kind of like the Anaconda Copper Company, right? Only it's at a very different scale. So, the Indian Citizenship Board status is going to be heard by the Supreme Court. Yes, the Supreme Court's going to have to deal with this issue. How do you have non-taxpaying citizens? 1905, the Heff case is decided in the United States Supreme Court in a case called In the Matter of Half. Albert Half sold two bottles of warm beer to John Butler at Kickapoo in Kansas, and I know the bottles of beer had to be warm. So, Mr. Butler, Mr. Mr. Butler gets the beer, Mr. Half gets arrested. And this is fascinating. The United States government prosecutes Heft, claiming that Mr. Butler's not a citizen under the General Allotment Act of 1887. A first-year law student could have won that case. All he had to do was read the law. The 1887 General Allotment Act stated very clearly that upon receiving an allotment, you become a resident of the state or territory. You become a citizen of the state and territory which you reside. So... In the case matter of half, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Mr. Half. He got out of he got out of jail on a writ of habeas corpus. Produce the body, produce the body. Now, this upsets a fellow South Dakotan. The South Dakotan, Charles Burke. Charles Burke realizes, along with many others, there was an assumption, and history is always fun because we always have assumptions. Notice one of the assumptions. Native people all got citizenship in 1924. That's an assumption, and it's not true. The other assumption was in the case of half that citizenship came when you got a fee patent and all restrictions removed against the property. That was an assumption the Supreme Court had to straighten out. So Mr. Burke said, we're going to pass an act and we're going to change things. We're going to give citizenship to Native people when they get a fee patent and all restrictions are removed. And so the Burke Act was passed. Citizenship mandated at the granting of a fee patent with all restrictions removed, i.e. taxable, mortgageable, alienable. The land would be. So now... One more addition to the Burke Act, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs under the Secretary of the Interior would have the authority to grant fee patents before the 25-year period of trust as stated in the law. So this is going to be the troubling time for Montana's tribal citizens is the Burke Act and how it's administered. Now. After the Burke Act, the Flathead Reservation will be allotted. So it will come under the terms of the Burke Act for citizenship. In other words, the Flathead residents are going to have to get a fee patent or it will be broken. That's the quiet crisis that I'm building up to. 1907, 
Blackfeet will be allotted under legislation. 1908, Fort Peck. So notice, by 1908, we have four reservations in Montana. The Crow are citizens by virtue of a trust patent. Flathead, Fort Peck, and Blackfeet by virtue of a fee patent. Different statuses here, different property statuses determining citizenship. Now, 1910 to 1914, there's a lull in fee patenting, and I should tell you why. The first reservation ever allotted was in 1884, the Omaha Reservation, remember? Well, those 25-year period trust patents were all going to expire in 1909. Well, the Department of the Interior and the Office of Indian Affairs got scared because they saw something on the horizon. When those fee patents would be issued, what would happen to the allottees? And here's what happened. Most of them ended up losing them via V taxes in Thurston County, Nebraska, or they sold them. Then they became landless, and notice that dream of the General Allotment Act, everybody owning a piece of property went like ice on a hot day. It vanished. And the Department of the Interior is scared, and so you see a lull in fee patenting, and when you see a lull in fee patenting, you see a lull in citizenship. But that's going to change under the administration of Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson is going to appoint Franklin Lane to be his Secretary of the Interior and Cato Sells to be his Secretary, excuse me, his Commissioner, his Commissioner of Indian Affairs. Now both Lane and Sells are libertarians. They make Paul Rand look like a bad libertarian if you want to have the truth. Don't think liberal, think libertarian. And what they want to do is remove all of the government protections on trust allotments. And they're going to use the Burke Act to do it. And this is when it gets messy and dirty. This is not a good time. But it's a quiet crisis because you don't see it in the newspapers. You don't see a public outcry about what's about to happen. Woodrow Wilson's appointment of Franklin Lane, Cato Sells, is going to open up the floodgates to fee patenting, but it's also going to open up the floodgate to citizenship. And that's where Montana's going to have to come in. Using the authority of the Burke Act, and as a good libertarian, Cato Sells is going to promise tribesmen freedom from government control, i.e. the 25-year period of trust. We're going to let it go. We're going to give each individual who receives a fee patent now their prorated share of the tribal monies, if there's any there. So using the authority of the Burke Act, Cato Sells reinstitutes the disastrous competency commissions from the Omaha Reservation. The Omaha had a competency commission. Folks went out. They interviewed every one of those Omaha lotties to make sure they could pay their taxes when they got the fee patent, and 90-some percent couldn't. So you know who picks up the mess, don't you? And as citizens, it's the county. Oh, here's the quiet crisis. The quiet crisis. Using the authority of the Burke Act, and I do want to stress misusing the authority of the Burke Act, Sells reinstitutes competency commissions. And here's a big question for you. How can you determine someone's competency in 10 minutes? And this is a life decision. You're going to get a fee patent. How are you going to use that land? 
Are you going to be able to pay the taxes? Can you pay the mortgage if you get a mortgage for that property? Oh, this is the quiet crisis. The Competency Commission is put together. Chairing it is James McLaughlin. We all know him. Frank A. Thackerty. Thackerty is superintendent of Gila River. And Charles B. Lowmiller, who is the superintendent at Fort Peck. And James McLaughlin will spend most of 1915 in Montana, quiet crisis, determining the competency of Native people at Crow, you see they still have trust patents, but they're citizens, Fort Peck, Flathead, and he's going to do a real dirty job. It's not, it, how could it be anything but, but dirty? What they're going to do is they're going to force patents, i.e. citizenship too, on people whom they consider competent. And these competency commissions were very sloppy. Now, accompanying the sloppiness is citizenship. They go to Fort Peck and they start their work. They finish at Fort Peck in 1915, the summer thereof. They move to the Flathead Reservation. And the Flathead Reservation, they issue more patents to more Native people whom they consider competent. Then they move to Crow. And I want you to just see, this is a newspaper from the Ronan paper. This is McLaughlin coming up to determine competency. To determine competency, and with it comes citizenship. Citizenship. Now, at Crow, most of the people who got fee patents were women under the forced issue of the Competency Commission. And I do want to stress, at the end of each of these competency commission jobs, they had a citizenship, they had a citizenship ceremony. And the citizenship ceremony, it's called Ritual to Citizenship. James McLaughlin patented it. He had a badge for it. It's, it's romantic as you can imagine. It's, it's, and this is, this is one this is a competency commission that was done on the Ainton Reservation in mid-1916. But if you look at it, James Cook, Joseph T. Cook, what's your Indian name? I hand you this bow and arrow. I give you money and a purse. I put it all down, but as you can see, you can, you can go through it very quickly. Very romanticized, and it doesn't deal with the reality of the problems that are going to come about from these competency commissions. Now, competency commissions for Cato Cells, a libertarian, went too, too, they were too slow. Even though they were fast and dirty, they were still too slow. So he decides to do something unthinkable. He decides to issue fee patents based on one's degree of blood. This is the race card that gets played. And Cato Cells, we should, said, we should never use race, but the more white that a native person is, the more competent they are. So he just started to issue fee patents based on blood degree. And his first decree was 1917, and he will subsequently modify it later. 
1917 decree, Cato Sells ordered, quote, patents in fee to all able-bodied adults of less than one half Indian blood, and there will be given as far as as many under the full law complete control of their property. Hence, the libertarian ideas of Cato Sells. Now, what the superintendents will have to do on reservations in Montana and elsewhere where allotment has occurred is put together blood lists. And that's what they're called. They're blood lists. And the blood lists are going to be just name, allotment number, legal description, blood quantum, relatives. And the list will then go from the superintendent to the commissioner to the general land office and then the general land office is going to sit down and just crank out fee patents one right after another. And these blood lists, these blood lists are, are quite, quite disturbing when you think about it. I showed one blood list in class one day and a student said, my gosh, there's one of my relatives. Land lost. Two years later, Cato Sells did this, 1919. He modified his first declaration to make it even more expansive. Blood degree to get a fee patent and to be granted citizenship. Now, I also want to add, since the Turtle Mountain Reservation in North Dakota did not have enough land for Turtle Mountain people to be allotted, they got allotments on the public domain in eastern Montana. And so these blood lists that you will see coming up after this one, this is, this is a blood list that I took out of the National Archives. This is a Turtle Mountain, and it'll have in there Montana legal descriptions for public domain allotments, and they lost them to, due to taxes, due to foreclosures. So, we have to keep in mind that these competency commissions, granting citizenship, the blood list granting citizenship, are going to create a real disaster. And here's the disaster. These people are the poorest of the poor, so they can't afford the proper, the taxes. So what most of them do, and this is based on years of looking at legal descriptions in courthouses, I discovered that these people lost their land because they went and got a mortgage so they could pay the taxes and then they had to pay the mortgage back and the taxes and they just couldn't. So we're looking at a real American land foreclosure disaster. But it's quiet. Nobody sees this unless you sit in a county courthouse and look at that level of citizenship. That level of citizenship. Also, also, it, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. The competency commissions and policy declarations created many citizens at Blackfeet, Fort Peck, Flathead, and they were told by the Attorney General of Montana, you can vote in the special 1919 election. And they voted. And the big issue on the September 2nd, 1919 election was should we legalize boxing in Montana, which didn't pass. Now, the same year, Glacier County is organized so that the Blackfeet can now have a precinct and vote. Cut bank, browning. Now, I do want to stress, because of the population of the Blackfeet, they're going to be a power broker in Glacier County. 
They're going to have a lot of folks who can vote. So you're going to find Blackfeet who will be elected to the state legislature. Now, here's the trouble. The trouble is that Cato Sells' policies created silent trouble for the Montanans and its new citizens. One, it destroyed the new citizens' property holdings because they couldn't afford to pay the taxes or the mortgages they got to pay the taxes. It destroys the holdings of both mixed bloods and full bloods because full bloods will be judged under the competency commissions, not the blood lists. Often unable to pay taxes, tribal fee patent holders sought mortgages. And as they lost the mortgages due to fund of their inability to pay, they became landless. See, we don't see it, but they became landless. And where did they go? They lived with other relatives on the reservation. Where did the Turtle Mountain people go? They went to Fort Peck. That's where they were that's where they ended up. I had a call one day from a fellow at, at Fort Peck. He said, how'd these Turtle Mountain people end here? And they lost their allotments in the public domain. They moved to the nearest reservation seeking protection. Now, for counties in states like Montana, North Dakota, and South Dakota, they had to pick up the relief tab. And in Rowlett County, North Dakota, 1928, two-thirds of the county budget went to pay citizen Indians who were indigent. Do you see a crisis here? Welcome to citizenship. Representative William Williamson of South Dakota is so angry in 1924 when he is serving in the United States House of Representatives, he responds to the congressional record saying, I have in my state native people who served in World War I and came home and found their property gone for taxes. They were fighting in the trenches in France. The fee patent came, and the county had to take the pro tax the property under state law. He came home, and there it's, it's gone. This happened throughout the country. Here's the foreclosure tragedy, and it's very quiet. It's not in the newspapers. Now, the Great War does do this. It allows people to become citizens. And in 1919, just a few days before the armistice, Congress passes legislation letting, letting servicemen and women apply for citizenship. Very few Montana tribesmen applied for citizenship this way. Very few. After the war, Fort Belknap is allotted, and the allottees, Congress said, who get a trust patent will become citizens. So that leaves only two reservations that weren't allotted, Rocky Boy, Rocky Boy, and Tongue River, now Northern Cheyenne. By 1923, two-thirds of Native people across the country were citizens and a greater ratio of Montana tribesmen were citizens. And then in a burst of patriotic fever and the last dying gasp of progressivism, Congress unilaterally passed the 1924 Indian Citizenship Act. The con tribesmen under the act did not have to apply or possess a certain type of property right, but the law continues existing federal lordship over the properties of tribal people. So that's going to be a problem. 
Senator Burton K. Wheeler, the great progressive of Montana, pushed for the act as a member of the Senate Indian Affairs Committee. But there was little support from the tribal community for this legislation. Keep that in mind, the tribal community is not supporting it. They sought their own identity, including their own tribal citizenship in their own tribal communities and participate in their own tribal governments. Now, reasons for the passage of this act. Some argue it was to remove government inefficiency. Notice that libertarian view. Others viewed the legislation as unloading the federal trust responsibility on the states. Ah! But here's where that quiet crisis comes in. Following the latter line of thinking, let's remove tribal issues from the federal to the state local level. Charles Burke is now Commissioner of Indian Affairs in 24, and he argues states need to take a bigger responsibility for tribal peoples. They need to intensify services to tribal people, but the state is caught in a bind. South Dakota, Montana, North Dakota, New Mexico, they're all caught in a bind because of that federal wardship. The Enabling Act, the language of the 1887 General Allotment Act. Without changing federal guardianship, state-federal divide remain. Upon passage of the 1924 Act, there were a few congratulatory newspapers. Now, 7,000 Montanans given the right to vote, that's completely wrong because most of them already had the right to vote. But boy, everybody sort of, isn't it great? Robert Yellowtail, in 1924, ran for Congress. He ran in the second congressional district primary. He was defeated. There's this kind of patriotic, we're all American citizens. And then, and then it's, then it dies. Citizenship does not guarantee the franchise. In 1924, the state of Montana and Blaine County, where Fort Belknap is, would not open a precinct. This isn't an old. This is an old story, but it's 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 also a new story. Do any of you remember last uh, two years ago? One year ago, 2016, the Fort Belknap Reservation, through its legal representation, contemplated legal action against Blaine County and the state of Montana for doing something they hadn't done in, since 1924 very well, which was provide access for citizens to vote. See, the, the quiet crisis continued well beyond World War I. Bighorn County, you gotta like Bighorn County, Crow Reservation. The Bighorn County folks, they decided we're gonna try and get tax revenue out of these new citizens. But remember, the Crow are citizens under the General Allotment Act and they get citizenship when they get a fee patent unless that competency commission had hit them hard and it didn't hit them as hard as other reservations. So, Bighorn County Treasurer, he goes after every crow colt that he can find to get tax dollars. I mean, these counties, I'm going to sympathize with Bighorn County. The tax base is very small, so 1924, the county treasurer said, where do I get, where do I get taxes? Where do I find money? So we taxed all the colts. There's a lot of horses on Crow. And so what he did is he taxed the colts. Federal dollars had been used to buy the mayor, so we couldn't tax that, because that's a federal piece of property. But he said, when she throws a colt, that's mine to tax. Well, it goes to court. Of course it is. 1925 in the case, 
draws me three four tops. Three four tops owned the horses. The state Supreme Court of Montana says you can't tax them. The colt is a piece of federal tribal property. South Dakota went through the same thing in the Rickard case. They tried to tax all the calves. <laughs> they lost two. <laughs> so, Bighorn County comes back again. 1923, Montana passes an anti-peyote piece of legislation, and Big Sheep is arrested on the Crow Reservation for possession of peyote. Violation of state law. It goes to the state Supreme Court in the case State v. Big Sheep, 1926, and the state Supreme Court of Montana rules. You cannot arrest him. The federal government has not banned peyote on the reservation. Therefore, you have no jurisdiction. So now, in the judge's opinion, they're very upset because they say, look, a citizen can violate a state law on a reservation. See the quiet crisis that's looming because of citizenship. Tribal citizenship with federal trusteeship created financial hardships for the state of Montana. In 1923, Montana asked Congress, will you provide money so we can build roads in federal lands and on reservations? So notice we're having a Forest Service session. But here's one of the problems with federal lands in Montana. How do you get tax revenue off them at this point in time? 1924, the legislature memorialized Congress. Will you pay the tuition of Crow students in public schools? Oops. Remember Justice Story talked about this in 1889 at Lake Mohawk. So, the last one, 1924, Congress memorializes, uh, Montana memorializes Congress. And they ask for congressional help to fund public education. I do want to just stress this in closing. Many states and many counties in Montana will join the Association of Counties of Western States seeking one reimbursement for local dollars spent on reservations and demanding that tribal citizens remain federal responsibility. Keeping with the theme of the conference, time of change, time of trouble. <laughs> Thank you.